0: Um, so, uh, you know, we're, I love the thought that we're going to do a Christmas cantata in January, you know, I just, that just makes me happy. I don't know why. Um, but, um, and Dan of course has to play Jesus. Um, he's the only one with experience. Um, it's, he's got a, he's got it on his resume. Um, and so when you look at the idea of what Christmas is, according to the church calendar, Christmas is a feast of 12 days and I want to talk just a little bit about the history of that but first um, yeah let's do that first um, so within the, the, the church tradition the celebration of Christmas is the period that they they call in the Eastern Orthodox Church Christmas Tide okay? so Christmas Tide is the 12 day period between the birth of Christ December 25th and the uh, 5th of January, also known as Epiphany. So what happens is they start with the 25th of December being the birth of Christ, the beginning of Christmastide, and then they work backwards from that four weeks to establish what Advent is. And we spent several, well, four or five weeks talking about what does it mean to be a people of waiting, what does it mean to be a people who, who long for him to come in that way, and that we partner with that. When Jesus um, really comes as Emmanuel, God with us. What's interesting, though, is this time, so the 12-day period of Christmas, is the only time in the church calendar where fasting is against the rules. You are not allowed to fast during the 12 days of Christmas. Only time that the church suspended fasting. Isn't that awesome? And the reason is because, like Jesus said, what did Jesus say when they asked why his disciples didn't fast like John's disciples? They don't fast while the bridegroom is with them; they feast. So during the feast, where we're in, where we're inaugurating that Christ has come, we th- there is no fasting. And it is the idea, when fasting is suspended, that incarnation, who God is, is on full display. In fact, I, I mentioned um, some of the, the aspects of this get really, really funny. Uh, I was listening to an um, Anglican uh, minister in, uh, in Texas uh, talking about Advent. And he was saying that, um, in, he said, it's, it's the only time in the year... When you should have champagne for breakfast for 12 days. So the idea is it's that you are, it is party. It is celebration. It's feasting. And so there is no fasting while we feast. And what they find is that within this, now real quick, the reason it's 12 days. Who had that thought of like, why 12? Okay, so there's, there's layers to this understanding. Not the least of which is it aligns with the honoring of the twelve tribes of Israel and it aligns with the honoring of the twelve disciples. but also what they decided is when the church first established the calendar is on the 25th they celebrated both Jesus birth and his baptism. Some guys got together and said, yeah, we should do that different. So what they decided is epiphany or the the, the, the The 12th day is then the Feast of Epiphany, and that's when we celebrate the baptism of Jesus. So what they start with is on the the 25th of December is his birth, on January 5th is his baptism, and the reason it's called Epiphany is it's the revealing. What's it the revealing of? It's the first revealing that we The son of God or God in the flesh and the first revealing of the Trinity ever to humanity. So the epiphany, they say, what's so unique about the epiphany is what's being shown or showcased, revealed is not Jesus. He's part of the equation, but what's actually being revealed is the Trinity. Why? Jesus goes into the water, heavens open, the father speaks and the dove descends. The first time you find the Trinity all on full display. So they said we need to have a feast for that. So one of the things I have to figure out is I want us to have some type of party on the Sunday of Epiphany. So that's Tasha's job. But uh, is, I just come up with the ideas, and she has to figure it out. That's right. Uh, and see, she doesn't get – there's no insider trading here. This is all. It's all full. She gets at same time everybody else. So the 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 and for those of you that are really into dating, so March twenty fifth is when not dating. Like, sorry, excuse me. To figuring out how dates play into the calendar. So March twenty fifth is nine months before December twenty fifth, and if you follow the church calendar. March 25th is the Feast of Annunciation, which is when they say Mary. we, we, fe- uh, we celebrate Mary's conception. So they, they, believe me, they, they think this whole thing through. And keeping in mind, now, it doesn't quite lay out exactly right because we don't think that Jesus was actually baptized 12 days after he was born. Otherwise, there was like a whole Benjamin Button thing going on, and I don't know exactly how that worked. Uh, But what you do find is that Jesus, we know he um, he was baptized and we want to honor that. And they try to lay that out in between December 25th and uh, Lent and Easter correctly, because we've got from from December 25th to Lent and Easter to honor his life. And then you've got. The the, um, the birth that's then celebrated again. See how this works? It's really funny how they, they lay all this out. But it's, it's honoring and celebrating. Now, thankfully, people have come to understand more and more that the feast of Christmas was not established as a replacement of a pagan holiday. How many people have heard that? Christmas is a pagan holiday. Okay, that's a lot. Um, so, there are pagan holidays that were in December. In fact... That's another reason that they decided to move Epiphany or the baptism into January is because they recognized that when they put uh, the baptism and the birth in December, they said, you know what? It's going to get caught up in all these other pagan holidays. But Christmas was never it. It just so happens that it falls at the same time as other pagan holidays. But it wasn't something that we were trying to because people get all into that stuff. Well, I don't even celebrate Christmas anyway. Just some well that's really um, that's just an uninformed statement and while there are pagan holidays around it Christmas tide is not that so Christmas tide is fast free I like that its fast free but it's not for the sake of gluttony rather because we are celebrating the purification and redemption of creation that is wrought by Christ's incarnation all food are sanctified so it's not that they're not fasting because all of a sudden um you know we just get to be gluttons and eat until you know eat stacks of pancakes three times a day it's not that it's just that they they want us to understand that when jesus came he came to show us that everything was holy the whole time so he wants us to take it all in So that's the idea. So these 12 days then uh, obviously culminate with epiphany, um, sometimes called theophany, but that's another whole thing, uh, In January, uh, on January 6th. So each of these 12 days also serve to commemorate or honor something that happened. So uh, uh, December 26th is St. Stephen's Day. St. Stephen's Day is the day where we honor and commemorate the first martyr of the church, St. Stephen. Uh, You might recognize that St. Stephen is the first one we ever find being killed on behalf of the faith of Christendom in the book of Acts. Uh, Today, uh, the 27th, is St. John's Day, where we commemorate the apostle, or sometimes they say John the Apostle, John the Evangelist Day. Tomorrow is what's called the Feast of Innocence Day. Feast of Innocence is because they wanted to honor all of the children that were killed by Herod when he was trying to find Jesus. So tomorrow is a is a feast where we commemorate and honor and celebrate the memory of that. The thing that I think that's really interesting, though, is um, with St. Stephen's Day specifically, which for all of those, uh, it was funny because I sent my sister, um, St. Stephen's is my favorite Grateful Dead song. So I sent my sister yesterday, St. Stephen's, and I said in honor of this day, and she was like, I was just thinking. So I don't know, maybe someday we'll come up with like, you know, the different things that we can do to honor those days. But what you see is that St. Stephen was the first part of the church. And I think it is not insignificant that he was put to death because he declared that the old guard of that day was gone and a new day had dawned. In fact, if you look specifically the thing that outraged all the Jews because he wasn't killed by the Romans. St. Stephen, interesting, is St. Stephen was killed by the church alone. And he was killed by the church, by the Jewish people, for actually what they said is his teaching contradicted and dishonored Moses and the law. Those are the things that Jesus said he came to fulfill. So isn't it interesting that the first martyr of the church was a martyr put to death by the religious system for saying their system was too small. That God was bigger than their system. So we stand on the shoulders of that. Um, So today, um, we're going to look at the idea of joy and peace. I'm going to read a a passage to you from uh, the Christmas story. Um, just because it's, I I think it's so good. Um, so you find in the angels appearing, um, that they said, verse 10 of Luke chapter two, do not be afraid. Now we don't have time to go into it right now, but just note the idea of no fear. It's the first thing they say. And we think they're saying that just because there's angels in the sky. I'm, I would agree. That there is a measure of that where angels come out of the sky. I think I freak like I get that, but that's not the whole point. Um, Do not be afraid because uh, once again, this is verse 10. I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. I'm going to read it to you out of the passion translation just because as you can see, I didn't have this on our on my sheet tonight. Uh, The Lord just spoke this during prayer that we were to say it. So uh, verse 10, Luke chapter 2, don't be afraid, for I have come to bring you good news, the most joyous and peaceful news the world has ever heard. And it is news for everyone, everywhere. If it's not good news for everyone, it's not good news for anyone. It's just that simple. Because according to Paul, as soon as Jesus shows up on the scene, behold, old things have passed away, all things have become new, and we are all now a new creation. That's a whole other teaching to really mess with some people's doctrine for another day. So, we live in an age not that different from other ages. It's a time filled with fear and rage. It's a time when all around us there are opportunities to be fearful of what might happen or enraged at what is happening. But we're in Christmas, and I think it is by no accident that the 12 days of Christmas is our way of partying, feasting, and rejoicing into what we know as the calendar of New Year. One of the most scandalous things you find about the New Testament church, one of the most scandalous things you find, is their joy. You see, to the Roman mind, which is where the church takes root in the Roman Empire, the thing that makes this small group of people so peculiar is its joy. This joy was absolutely scandalous. It was absolutely absurd. It infuriated the Roman army. Actually, find this in documents written by Roman officials that were charged with suppressing and rooting out this group of believers. What they regularly mention is the joy these people demonstrate in the face of absolutely overwhelming persecution. So you can find documents, and you can Google this, um, it, that where these Roman guys that were set in Jerusalem that were they were tasked by Herod or Caesar um, to snuff out this whole thing. And what these guys keep talking about is we keep trying to do that, but not only are they not giving up, they're happy. They're, these guys are mesmerized and blown away by the joy, the scandalous joy of this gospel and those that follow it. And we're talking about people who at this point, what they were doing is they were actually going in, burning their businesses and, and uh, killing their families. And yet they were saying, in, this, in the face of this ridiculous opposition and oppression, these people are still happy. There's something wrong with them. They have a mental problem. I mean, literally, they were saying, These people have lost their minds. And so what he says is they somehow continue in the face of this. In fact, there are instances where they would line them up to execute them, and they would all rejoice and shout and raise their hands and say, Jesus is Lord. Now, what we think that means is Jesus is in charge what they're actually saying would sound to us like saying Jesus is president. Because the only people that used the word Lord were the Roman Empire, and on the Roman coin, it said Caesar is Lord. So the idea of Lord, we we find that all the time, and we think that's a very godly way to speak about Jesus. It was not. It was a political term. So all the people today that say that Jesus isn't political just don't know what they're talking about. Jesus is blatantly and overtly political. He just doesn't belong to either one of our parties. And so what you find is that in this context, they would, they would execute these people and yet still they, their families were still being joyful in fact um we'll look at this passage and i i only have it uh oh and i'll just show you this because i think it's fun uh so saint stephen uh is let me see if i can find him i've got him here somewhere i thought i did saint stephen are you around there he is this is this is the most common uh this is saint stephen this is the guy we celebrate yesterday and if you can see this those little um, round things, those are rocks. he was stoned. So this is Saint St- uh, the, the church's picture of Saint Stephen. Uh, this is the church's uh, common picture of, of Saint John that we that we celebrate. I thought you might might want to see those. Um, so Paul actually writes to the Philippian church, and he talks to them about this idea of rejoicing. And we'll, we'll look at this together. Romans, or excuse me, Philippians chapter four, verse four. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And and uh, I've got this. This is actually that I'm reading from using the um, um, New American Standard. Uh, this is in the King James, but you can follow along. Rejoice again always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known. And, and the reason I don't like the King James is, is, well, in this language, they just totally neuter what it's trying to say. It's not moderation. It's gentleness. So let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is with you. See how, see how that changes the text? Let everything be in moderation. Just don't have too many candies at Christmas. Because. The Lord is at hand. Well, what does that mean? And why does he care if I have candy? You know, that's not the idea. What it's saying is the byproduct and we'll talk about this, the byproduct of your joy should be gentleness unto all men. I would venture to say if gentleness is not our action with others, it is a direct correlated Uh, um, expression, or lack thereof, of joy and peace inside. Joy and peace inside will always equal gentleness outside. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving let your request be made known unto God. And the peace of God which surpasses understanding will guard your hearts or will keep your hearts in mind through Christ Jesus. So the thing that you find, that is so interesting about this passage. I, if, if I didn't feel like it would distract everybody, but I just leave St. Stephen there staring at you with his rocks. Um, but that I find so fascinating is here is Paul while he's writing to the Philippian church in 62 AD. He's writing from a Roman prison. He writes the letter to them. And, and keeping in mind, this would be like we write an email. Paul wasn't sitting there. In deep intercession, and all of a sudden, the power of God overtakes him. And, you know, it's like that Jim Carrey scene in Liar, Liar, where he can't control the pen, you know. And all of a sudden, Paul starts pinning this letter. And that's not the way it works. Paul is sending this this group of people an encouragement because they're facing overwhelming oppression and overwhelming persecution from the Romans and from the Jews and uh, from the the, the shouldn't say it that way from the Romans and from the religious systems that were guarded by the pharisaical uh, uh, Jews at that time. And what he actually instructs them to do is to rejoice and let gentleness be known. Do you realize, first of all, that Paul, why what he was doing at this point, 62 A.D., he would have been only waiting on his execution date. He's already sentenced to death. So this would have been the, the, um, the, the parallel of death row. <clears throat> and in his letter to the Philippian church, 14 times while on death row, in this letter alone, Paul says, joy. He speaks of joy 14 times in this letter alone, while simply waiting on what day are they going And so from that point, he says to them, how are we, you know, how are we supposed to do this? Well, because your joy is the Lord. And as we've discussed, this term is incredibly countercultural, this term of Jesus, because what he's saying is the joy is based on that you. There is a new kingdom and Jesus is in charge of it. And I think it's also fascinating that he says, let your gentleness be known unto all people, keeping in mind. They were killing them. So what he says is, he doesn't just stop with joy and peace. He says, and make sure that your joy and peace is to such a degree internally that it's demonstrated as gentleness when they come and they burn your business down. When they take your home wrongfully, the way they'll know something is really different is your gentleness in response to that. Now you know why the Romans thought they were crazy. Because the Romans were trying to bait them to fight. That was the whole point. Because if they could bait them into fighting, they could kill them and, and really no big deal. They could squash the whole thing, but they wouldn't do it. And so what happens is that all through this picture we actually find that this this idea of what it looks like for us to demonstrate joy and peace are deeply part of the christmas story jesus came to start that he inaugurated a new kingdom and what he said is joy and peace being the realities that they are is going to break out of you, as Jesus said, the new kingdom is something that's in you already and breaking out of you, and it's going to then demonstrate itself as gentleness. And in the midst of the Christmas story, you find joy and peace 13 times in the Christmas story alone. One gospel doesn't even give us a Christmas story. So in three Gospels, in a couple chapters, you have 13 times. Yeah, I'd say it's a big deal. How many times have we mentioned that Thanksgiving is the gate to peace? Paul inclu- includes the need for prayer, but not any, spe- uh, not just any prayer. He specifies that when facing worry, we're to address that worry by focusing our heart on God through prayer and thanksgiving. So what you That this idea of what Jesus came to do, the, the, the theosis, the idea of Jesus coming into our humanity essentially means when Christ entered our humanity through incarnation, humanity was reunited perfectly with God. Jesus clearly spoke of this in John chapter 15, because salvation isn't about replacing our human nature with a fully divine nature, but growing within our very earthliness and embodiedness. To live more and more in the ways of love and grace so that it becomes natural to us in our deepest nature. See, part of the challenge that we have when we get over-spiritualized is we think that I'm going to go to a revival service and then all of a sudden I'm going to walk out as super Christian. I've never had anybody lay hands on me and me leave a more gracious person. I've become a more gracious person. I feel like that the way we become more gracious people is by being gracious. I've never had anybody. Do you realize I have never, ever, ever had anybody pray for me and me get more peaceful, more joyous, more, um, more gracious, any of that stuff. What happens as we discipline ourselves? of peace, and of joy, and of grace. The doing impacts the being. It really does. I, I, wish it was, I wish it was the other way. Like, that would be awesome. I would be at the front of the I want more peace inside life, right? Now, I will say that the correlation you find between presence and joy is undeniable, and so you can say that in the presence of God is fullness of joy, right? So what you can... What could argue is that um, if you want more joy, become more aware of his presence. I think you could argue that. But what I don't think happens is I just need to get into a service where there's a whole bunch of presence, and I'll walk out and have more joy that stays with me. I've had it for a little bit, but it, it usually ends up wearing out. What I've learned though is that's because I thought his presence was the thing that happened whenever I felt the goosebumps. His presence is the thing that all of creation is vibrating with, his presence holds the whole thing together, it emanates. From everything around us, our feet walk on it, we breathe it, we look at it, we watch it come out of the clouds and the sky and the sun and the trees. The hummingbirds flutter with it. So that's his presence. And as I become more aware of that, I can't help but have more joy. Because I don't need to ask him for more presence. I just need to recognize that presence is the thing that's holding the whole thing together in the first place. Joy just kind of happens. And so what I really think we recognize then as we look at what salvation is about is one scholar said it this way. Centuries of Christian theology confirm that the image described in Genesis, the image described in Genesis refers to our eternal essence in which God cannot be increased or decreased. It's the soul's objective union with God. You and every other created thing begin with divine DNA, an inner destiny, as it were, a blueprint tucked away in the cellular part of your being that begs to be allowed and fulfilled by showing itself. The image of God is the blueprint and the DNA within you that begs to be allowed to show itself. Peace and joy are the default emotional statuses of the flourishing human being. I'm going to say that again. Peace and joy are the default emotional statuses of the flourishing human being where we are intended to live in communion with God and other people. I genuinely believe, because what we think is going to happen is in the end, and whatever happens, it's going to be like the Garden of Eden. We've totally missed the point. Jesus' coming was the Garden of Eden. Why do you think it is Paul keeps referring to Jesus as the new Adam? Do you realize that what St. Uh, what Irenaeus said when he looked at the picture of the nativity is he said, Eden has come. So what happens is the Garden of Eden, that kind of, of idyllic state, is something that Jesus came to restore. But it's not something that exists off in the distance. It's not something that we're waiting on all of a sudden to show up. We're actually just waiting on the the, the, the divine DNA of who God is, the image of God, to demonstrate itself. And I genuinely believe that the default state of our humanity is peace and joy. If we'll let it be, the default is peace and joy and in that way we are intended to demonstrate our default state by communion with god and others i i I really don't know that we can ever experience the peace and joy that we're supposed to have short of relational exchange and maybe that relationship is just with god because i'm not going to argue that there's some like Hermits and monks that do some crazy stuff, and I know that they're walking with the Lord. I have no doubt. They haven't talked to somebody in 60 years, but I know that they know God. But I am saying it requires relationship. But the other God-given emotional states, this is when it's going to get interesting, the other God-given emotional states that alert us to danger and injustice when something is not quite right in the world are the emotions of fear and anger. Notice I said the other God-given emotional states. Fear and anger interrupt our equilibrium. They trigger our defenses and ready us for fight or flight. They are intended as short-term motivators for change. But we were never intended to live indefinitely in these states. Doing so can cause serious damage both physically and mentally, emotionally. So what happens is anger and fear are things that we're supposed to have. Some people, I've never said this before from a pulpit, uh, probably has never been said in the state of Indiana from a pulpit. Some people need more anger. Some people need more anger. Some people need When they look on the news and they see that we still have 400 children living in cages near the southern border to get angry. Some people, when they hear that we have now had multiple children die because while in our government's care, they have not been given water. And in detention centers, cages, they've died our government we did that we should get angry some people need to when they hear that in this situation because we have sent the parents away and we've told the parents you can't come in and we take the kids we sent the parents back and we have no way to contact the parents who are now in mexico and then we say so now if there are any family who are here in the united states because we can't care for them and now we have all of these children so if there are any family members that will come forward, we'll, we'll let you take the kids and shelter them. And then we've now arrested 40 families who've come forward to take these kids because we found out they were illegal immigrants. So we asked, we beg them to come forward, and then we're arresting them and taking their kids. We should get angry. Some of us need to get angrier because anger is a God-given emotional gift that is to prompt you to action. It is in many ways, it can be in many ways the opposite of apathy. And I think in some ways, both fear and anger are God-given emotional responses that are needed. And so what happens, though, is in the age that we're living in, notice I said that we have lived in an age of fear and anger where it dominates our emotional status. So we're never supposed to live in them indefinitely. Uh, Anger and fear are both addressed in the Bible, and we're repeatedly told, fear not, which is simple and straightforward, though never easy. Yet by grace and spiritual practice, we make the journey from the place of fear to the place of love. So, well is the destination of the spiritual journey, the place of love. Perfect love casts out fear. We are on the other end, keeping in mind perfect love casts out fear, but that means that fear is first there. It overwhelms it where it comes in. So what happens is we can learn to live in a land of love while at the same time living in the real world, eyes wide open at the injustices that surround us. And we should be rightfully angry and yet, what does the Bible say? Be angry and what? Sin not. That just sounds like one of those verses that people quote at you, that, that nobody really knows what it means. Don't you love it when people do that? I heard somebody say the other day, you know, it's like when you're having a really bad time and somebody comes up to you and they're like, well, all things work together for good. And, so, and you've just lost your job and you want to tell them to get out of your face and take the book of Romans with them. Um. You know, that kind of thing happens. And so people quote these kinds of things, will be angry and sin not. And I've really, I've been, I'm a pastor. I had no idea what that really meant. Like practically speaking, how does that work? So I just thought the default was just don't be angry. But it makes much more sense when you look at this and understand the nuance and maturity of it. It will only be possible by giving ourselves to prayer and practice it will require the work of the spirit also in our hearts what i am now learning after a lifetime of being a christian is that to do this well requires a lot of what i'm calling big p practice and i call it big p practice because i don't mean practice like you do before the ball game i mean practice like a lifestyle of spiritual practice what i'm referring to is that my entire devotional life has been completely reorganized and shaped in the past, reshaped, excuse me, in the past year and a half. And now I believe that it is necessary to be a whole person living in peace and joy. Thriving as a whole being, holding my spirituality, emotions and physical body as a demonstration of my spiritual life, holding my emotions, my spirituality and my physical body as a whole being demonstration of spirituality at work in my life. This practice for me has become a multifaceted prayer life that includes reciting written prayer. I know that's a big one. I'm not praying to Mary just in case anybody's curious because as soon as you say reciting prayers, people go, well, now he's praying to Mary. No, no, Reciting written prayer why has that become important because what that does is first of all there's a sense of solidarity with the tradition that's went before us and where you align with this bigger prayer second of all what I've really learned is sometimes I just don't come up with good things to say sometimes I need other vessels sometimes I need other vehicles to be able to communicate say to God. And there are people who much smarter than me, much more spiritual than me, who have dedicated their lives to coming up with written spiritual prayers for us to be able to recite and say that communicate what God is doing in us through us and, and how we communicate to Him. The second thing is praying in the Spirit. The third thing is contemplative prayer meditation. It includes both reading and praying the scriptures. That's another thing I've started doing where I'll pray the Psalms scripture back to God. Um, it also includes a focused liturgical lifestyle that re-centers myself with the church tradition and the calendar of Eucharist, uh, the calendar and also the Eucharist. You see, I'm learning now more than ever that my emotions are not a problem. Now, unimmature um, emotions Problem than immature spirituality. However, they are something. My emotions are something that are to be developed and balanced. We must remember that both joy and peace are felt realities. You know, another word for a felt reality? Emotions. So, do you realize that when God said, or when Paul said, what the kingdom of God looks like? He says, righteousness, joy, and peace. Two-thirds of what the kingdom looks like are described as emotions. Figure that one out. But that's how it's supposed to be. So it's ridiculous to say that our emotions are liars, which is what I've always been told, and then say that the kingdom of God is defined two-thirds by emotions. It doesn't really make much sense. I've really tried to focus time Starting to understand where these lines are, and to be honest, I haven't exactly figured it out yet. But what I can say is that emotions are deeply tied to value. So this is just me sharing some thoughts. I'm not a psychologist. Emotions are deeply tied to value. So anger, as an example, is not bad. But I have to. But say I. Have something happens to that car the degree of anger i express is going to be directly related to the value i've given that car everybody with me so the degree of anger i express when that car gets damaged if i buy a brand new car and 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 dan uh, is here mowing the church and you know just decides hey i'm just going to mow through the parking lot and just pepper sprays that car with gravel The degree of anger that I express is going to be directly related to the value I have for that object. You can see how this is supposed to work. Anger is a motivating emotion designed to respond to a gap in value the car analogy, if you value your car and loan it to somebody and they abuse it, your anger is typically equal to the gap in the value you have for the car and the value the car was treated with. So anger is designed to be a motivator that spurs action based on a gap in value. So if I see somebody being treated as less than human Anger is supposed to be a natural, motivating emotion that causes me to respond to the value gap in how they were treated as opposed to how they are designed as the image of God. So the problem, though, becomes the value system, not anger. Because if my value system is off, What will happen is if I put value in possessions, if I put value in my own ego, if I put value in protecting myself, my anger is going to be directly resulting based on the value that's there. So if I so the anger, that's how you can say be angry and sin not. Why? Because be angry is fine. Sinning is where you have put an inappropriate value on an object that you shouldn't be putting that much value in. So it's supposed to motivate you to address value difference. The problem is, many times the value difference is, I value things too much. So if I mow the lawn a certain way, and then somebody comes and messes up my lawn, and I flip out, is my anger the problem? My value system is the problem. If I, if somebody in some way says something to me that offends me and upsets me, or I look like an idiot if I fall down on the, in the snow in front of somebody, and I get mad about it, is anger the problem, or is my self-image value the problem? So what's supposed to happen is. In that way, some people should be angry more and some people should be angry less. Some people need to have a higher value for some things. And some of us need to have our priorities restructured. Some of us, our values are out of whack. So when Paul says be angry and sin, not, don't let the sun go down on your wrath, the word here that Paul uses for wrath, is the same as anger, but it adds a prefix. It's a really interesting thing. So when he says, don't let the sun go down upon your eyes, how many people have been told that means if you're in a relationship, don't go to bed angry, right? So you stay up all night talking it out, and eventually you just pass out, ticked off. Like your body just gives out. And then you're like 45 minutes from having to go to work. And then you thought you were angry before you passed out, Right. So, you know, the wrath that you had then is nothing compared to the wrath everybody you have to work with is going to experience. Right? So that's what we thought this meant. While I think that's good advice, it's bigger than that. So don't, uh, or be angry and sin not, don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. The thing that this word, it's anger both times that Paul uses, it's the same Greek word, but he adds a prefix when he says, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. And the word that he here is really interesting. It means to submerge something. So what it's saying is anger is OK. But don't be somebody who your emotion and anger submerges you. To where you become lost in it, you become submerged in that emotion. So he's saying going to bed mad allows that anger This is deeply important for our body and our mind. Both anger and fear produce a chemical cocktail that activates the amygdala that are only intended to be used in short spurts. Literally, when you get mad or scared, your brain produces a cocktail that your entire body then gets. And it's supposed to do that. That's why moms can pick up cars off of their kids. That's why anger is a motivator. Fear is a motivator. It's a chemical cocktail that your brain produces, and it produces it specifically from the fight-or-flight area of your brain. So your amygdala, the fight-or-flight reflex, then kicks in and it says, either A, I need to get out of here, fear, or I need to respond and be able to defend myself, anger. Neither one of those are bad. But the problem is we live in an age where This kind of area of our brain is constantly being pulled upon, fear and anger. Especially in the political realm, you find this all the time. Somebody's either afraid or they're angry. They're angry at President Trump because they think he's trying to to do whatever, or they're afraid of the refugees because they're going to come take their homes. I mean, we don't have time to get into it, but you could actually label anger and fear to our two political parties. Right now, because we have a Republican president, the Democrats are angry. And the Republicans are fearful. Just the way it is. Now, that kind of thing is something that's always in our society that we live in right now. It's pulling on us and pulling on us and pulling on us and activating things within us. And so what happens is if we're not careful, they've actually found that this, this chemical cocktail is really, really good in short spurts. However, they have found that if the amygdala is overly active in fear and anger, it actually starts to erode the prefrontal cortex of your brain. The chemical that it releases if it's released too much, will erode parts of your brain. So it's physically and mentally um, uh, damaging. And the result of this chemical cocktail attacking your prefrontal cortex, actually what it causes is anxiety, and they've actually been able to connect it to dementia and other memory loss brain disease. Interestingly, I don't have to really ask this question uh, uh, too much, but think about how many times have you heard studies showing that dementia is more and more common, more and more people are suffering from it, more and more of our elderly and younger and younger people are experiencing this. And I've heard it, everything from Coca-Cola to ham, or probably spam, uh, actually, causes dementia, right? That's not what, and, and that's not, most of that's not founded, but they, they actually say that this is even possibly causing dementia. In practical order, we have to deal with this because what happens if not, we were not designed to live in anger and fear. We were not designed to subscribe to the rage and fear that, that are full. In fact, what do we, we've been in a war for the last 20 years what have we been in a war with terror America's war on terror do we realize it's everywhere around us it motivates people to buy things it motivates people to sell things it motivates people to act so what I'm suggesting is that our actual default state is joy and peace and that doesn't mean or that you get fearful but that means don't get drunk on the cocktail don't be somebody that stays there don't exist there and stop because you weren't designed to because you can actually be somebody who walks in joy and peace and still feels anger and fear but what happens is one of those felt realities is going to dominate your life and I genuinely believe That if you follow Paul's Philippians passage, you are not going to be able to be fearful and angry and gentle with everyone you encounter. If you're angry and scared of people, do you think gentleness is going to be how you interact? But if you're in joy and peace, in practical order, we start by reorganizing our original goodness. of God that we are, when we can discover and embrace that image and love deeply planted within us, peace and joy will become the natural expression of that identity. Thomas Keating said this, the positive being that emerges from you and me is the image of God. Everything you do that's positive is a breakout of the image of God. The problem is that this image has been distorted by the emotional programs for happiness and over-identification with false values or groups so that the purity and power and being of who we really are is hidden with layers of false self, both conscious and unconscious. The spiritual journey we're on is to deal with that and let the real image of God show, not the image of God that puts on a fake mask and says, I'm never scared or never angry. But the real thing that says the image of God is good. And I was created in that. That's my DNA, it's the blueprint, It's the fingerprint. And it's it desires to come out. And so I, I think in it is as we start this, this celebration of Christmas, the first thing I think we have to understand. In fact, if you were to say to people culturally, the word Christmas um, they would probably add to it the war on as the reality of what we think is happening culturally. But what I say is Christmas always means one thing. Joy and peace have come. And that's the kingdom we're citizens of. And as we do that, it doesn't matter what's happening around us. It doesn't matter what people are doing to us because our kingdom that we subscribe to is one that is joy joy. Thank you for listening to this message from Harvest House Church. For more information, find us online at harvesthouse.org.